0: You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at MidtownPres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Have you guys heard of John Paul Getty III? He was the grandson of the famous oil tycoon John Getty, who, according to the Guinness World Record book, was the richest man alive back in 1966. So we're talking a few decades back. He was worth over a billion dollars at that time. And so you'd think his grandson, John Paul Getty III, would have lived a pretty privileged, pretty easy, comfortable life. But that's actually not how it went for John Paul Getty III. In 1973, at the age of 16, he was kidnapped and held for ransom. And the kidnappers declared that they needed $17 million from his grandfather in order to release a grandson. And John Getty, his granddad, was notoriously stingy back in the day. Uh, some examples. Uh, he had a payphone installed at his mansion so that when people came over and needed to use the phone, they'd have to bring their own quarters. <laughs> <laughs> Tom likes like that idea. <laughs> yeah, really ridiculous. So they didn't rack up his own phone bill. Right? Uh, Whenever his clothing would wear out, he'd uh, start to just cut off the edges. He wouldn't buy new clothes. He'd just keep wearing them until the sleeves were too short. Uh, Anytime he traveled, he refused to pay the listed hotel price. He'd always negotiate it down, oftentimes at the expense of the places he stayed. John Getty was stingy. And so when it came time to pay the ransom for his grandson, he said, no, that's too steep a price for my grandson." And actually, that didn't make the kidnappers very happy, so they upped their game. They cut off John Paul Getty III's ear and a lock of his hair and mailed it to his grandfather. And they said, look, we'll reduce our demand. We're going to go down from $17 million to $3 because we're gracious kidnappers, right? But if you don't pay that, you're going to get a lot worse than just an ear and a lock of hair from your grandson. And John Getty said, eh, that's still a little too steep for me. He said the highest he'll go is 2.2 million, which is a weird number. Like, why 2.2? Well, that was the maximum amount he could deduct on his taxes that year. That was the maximum amount he could benefit from. And the kidnappers at that point didn't budge. They said, nope, 3 is the number. And so Getty said, all right, I will lend $800,000 to my son at 4% interest to cover the rest. And eventually, John Paul Getty III was freed, and a few of the kidnappers were arrested. But the damage had already been done at that point. And John Paul III lived a tortured life from that point forward. He struggled with drug addiction. He had a seizure that disabled him for the rest of his life. And he passed away at the age of 54. Friends, the Getty story is a pertinent reminder to every single one of us. Sometimes we possess our possessions, and sometimes they possess us. We can have all the money in the world and still be utterly ruled. And I know people like John Getty, these wealthy oil tycoons who seem to care more about money than family, they're easy targets. It's kind of low-hanging fruit for all of us normal people. right? We love a good story reminding us how terrible all the rich people are. In fact, uh, two of our Best Picture nominees in the Oscars last year were all about watching rich people suffer. We love a good story like that. But the truth is that if we're being honest, many of us are just as possessed by our possessions. And the bummer with us is oftentimes we don't even notice it. We don't even realize it. See, our entire Western world is built on the notion that obtaining more, getting more stuff, will lead us to true lasting life. America runs on that notion. I mean, America runs on Duncan, but that actually proves the point, right? We've been trained to believe that obtaining more is the way to true life. Uh, sociologists and psychologists have started to trace this trend back a few decades to around World War I. Uh, during the war, there were a variety of major corporations that grew very wealthy by churning out war materials. They saw exorbitant profits far beyond anything they had seen before. American patriotism fueled this economic boom. But then the war stopped. And Americans were at peace and content, and all of these corporations were like, "We can't keep up these exorbitant profits if people are at peace and content with their life, so what do we do? How do we keep driving profits up? Their solution was convince an entire population that their lives, as they currently experience them, are not good enough. Convince Americans they need more. And so the modern-day industry of marketing was born. They borrowed the best of the psychological tools from propaganda at the time, but they didn't want to call it propaganda because dictators and things. right? So they came up with a different word, public relations. That sounds really nice. Accessible, professional, but still at its core, propaganda. In fact, the earliest marketers weren't even shy about this. They acknowledged that that's exactly what they were doing. Uh, there's a guy named Paul Mazer, who was a prominent banker at Lehman Brothers in the 20s, one of the fathers of modern marketing. He said this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. There's another uh, retail analyst in the 50s who put it this way. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. And now, each of us in this room are breathing the oxygen of 100 years of obsession with consumption. Just the air we breathe. According to digital marketing experts interviewed by Forbes, the average American today sees a minimum of 4,000 advertisements per day. Minimum. And those ads are developed by teams of psychologists who have access to your email, if you have a Gmail account. They have access to your photos, if you have an Instagram account. They have access to all the things that you like and share on your Pinterest or your Twitter or whatever other social media accounts you have. They have computers on their side, too. Huge, multinational companies record your conversations through your phones in order to anticipate what you want before you know you want it, and then make sure that there are specialized advertisements produced by an algorithm so that every time you open your phone, you are seeing the things that you didn't know you wanted, but now you do. Everyone's reaching for their phone and like, I got to turn this off. I'm done with this, right? But, I mean, we're all smart people, right? Just because we're seeing ads like this doesn't mean we're buying into what they're selling. doesn't mean we have bought into this consumerism, right? I think the stats might say something different. In America right now, we have 4% of the world's children, but we have 40% of the world's toys. Do we need all those toys? Or are we possessed by our possessions? (laughs) I mean, you've heard it right here. (coughs) The most reliable source will tell you. (laughs) The average American household right now has $8,000 in credit card debt. We are spending money we don't have to get things we don't need, possessed by our possessions. And according to another recent study, 50% of Americans, one in two, believe that they would be happier if they could spend more money. And those are just the people willing to admit it. And it's not just out there in America, guys. It's not just ambiguous polls that are saying this. Ask yourself some simple questions in your own heart of hearts. Do you ever think that you might need just a little bit more money or a little bigger house or a better relationship and then you'd be really happy? Do you think that getting to the next threshold in your career will make you safe or happy? We all have a little Getty in us. We're all a little possessed by our possessions. And ultimately, it's becoming a demon in us. It's sucking life from us, because when we're consumed by consuming, it leads us to become two different types of people. Either we become really fearful, fearful of losing what we have. and so we. Hoard what we have, and we're paralyzed at the notion of being generous or maybe losing what we have, or we're captive by economic news or gas prices going up. We're fearful people. And if we're not fearful, we become anxious people in a consumeristic culture. We want to obtain more and more and more. We have this sense of contentment that we know is out there somewhere, and it eludes us no matter how much we get. And this vicious cycle of consumerism, it's perfectly ironic. Our discontent is only increased the more we seek to relieve it. It's not an accident that the most prosperous and materially secure nation in the history of the world is also the most anxious and worried we have on record. Biggie had it right 25 years ago. Mo' money, mo' problems. So what can we do? How do we become people who not only recognize when we're possessed by possessions, but who also can break free? of the chains that bind us to them. And as it turns out, that's actually not a new question because it's not a new problem. It's been around for as long as humans have and it's something that Jesus not only exposed but provided a pathway through in his own life and ministry. Uh, We're continuing, as Gabby mentioned, in this series called Glittering Vices. Uh, We're going through the season of Lent which is just a, a time that Christians have recognized for a long, long time that's all about turning our hearts and minds and bodies back to Christ back to Jesus and what he's called us to be and do in the world. And th- during the series, Glittering Vices, we're examining an old framework called the Seven Deadly Sins. It's a framework that was outlined by a guy named Evagrius of Pontus way back in the fifth century, the 400s. He was a monk. He wrote a book called Talking Back, a Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons, which, as I mentioned on Ash Wednesday, is just the most metal title for a book ever. Right? But the idea behind the Seven Deadly Sins is simple. They are seven postures of the human heart that ultimately contribute to our own destructive behaviors and to the world's brokenness. And the idea behind them is that they're sort of like sources. If you can get to these seven sources and really change them in your life, you will see a ripple effect throughout your own life and throughout the rest of the world. And so today, in our second teaching in this series, we're going to examine what Jesus has to say about our obsession with possessions, what Christians for a long time have called greed. We see that Jesus charts a path through it in three ways. He gives us, in the passage we're going to read together, a problem, a parable, and a paragon. It's just the English major in me. A paragon is like a special example, an elevated example. A problem, a parable, a paragon. So friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the third book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he, this is Jesus, said to him, Friends, who sent me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told him a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods." And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First, the problem. At this point in Luke's narrative, Jesus has become pretty famous. He's been healing people and teaching them that true life is found in him, and so the crowds are flocking to him, pressing in on him. And in the middle of this, everyone's bringing their problems. And so the crowd, at this point, is pressing in on Jesus, and we hear one voice above the kind of murmur of the crowd. Shout out, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. There's the problem, right? Money. Money. Because back in the day, people used to fight about stuff like money. But right off the bat, this guy's statement should strike us as curious and weird. Why does he come to Jesus with a legal money problem like this? Jesus was a spiritual teacher, a rabbi. Is he really the expert to settle this? Well, as it turns out, actually, yes. In the ancient Jewish world, rabbis were the arbiters of money cases. So there was a system in the temple where they'd have a designated rabbi who would be there to judge and sit over cases like this. But the problem is, Jesus isn't that rabbi. He's not in the temple. That's not his job. That's why he says, who sent me as a judge or arbiter over you? He's not being a jerk. He's saying, there's a system for this. You know there's a system for this. Why are you coming to me? Right? That's kind of the question embedded in the text here. There's another reason that the man comes to Jesus. Why? Well, Because Jesus was always talking about money. If you spend an hour and read the Gospel of Luke just front to back, it's remarkable. Jesus talked about money more than any other single topic in his ministry. More than prayer, more than fear, more than faith. Money. Just a few highlights. In Luke chapter four, when Jesus is first beginning his ministry, he has to overcome the devil's temptation for an abundance of possessions and wealth. And then from that point forward, he talks about it over and over. In Luke chapter 6, he talks about care for the poor and rebukes the wealthy for their indifference to the poor. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says that to follow him, you've got to give up your comfort and possessions. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a story about a man who gave away everything, his very livelihood, so that his neighbor could live. In Luke 16, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they were obsessive lovers of money and possessions, and that prevented them from practicing justice. In Luke 18, a wealthy and morally impressive rich man asks Jesus, hey, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, give away everything you own. In Luke 19, Jesus talks with Zacchaeus, who was a wealthy tax collector who was extorting people around him. And he praises Zacchaeus, because Zacchaeus says, you know what? I'm done doing this. I'm going to repay everyone and give them reparations afterward. Jesus is constantly talking about money. And this man knows it. That's why he comes to Jesus. He's like, you've got all these great teachings about money. And you know what? Could you just come over and like tell my brother to get his stuff in order here? Could you come over and use some of those great money teachings? Could you talk to him about this? Which is kind of a funny dynamic, right? It's like, if you're listening to a sermon, you're like, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this, right? That's what this guy is thinking right now about his brother. Jesus needs to talk to him about money. Jesus, would you come and sort this out for me? And all this time that Jesus spent talking about money, at least for me, still often begs the question, why? Like, I thought Jesus was a spiritual teacher. Why is he always talking about material things like money and possessions? Well, here's why, you guys. Jesus knows that the way we treat our material things is directly connected to our spiritual condition. See, we often like to separate those things in our culture. We like to think that spirituality is kind of this ethereal, floating-in-the-air, ideas that we believe. But Jesus insists that that's certainly not true. He says that your healthy spiritual life is always connected to what you do with your time and your stuff. And so if you want to know how near you are to loving God and loving others, start by looking at your bank account. All you've got to do is trace where you're giving of yourself and your time and your talents In your treasures. See, for Christians, giving is not just one thing we do alongside prayer and alongside service and other things. Giving is at the heart of every single thing that we do as Christians. Just to illustrate this, take uh, the three major virtues of faith, hope, and love that the New Testament outlines. These are three of the central Christian virtues, what Christians should look like and embody, faith, hope, and love. And at first, we think those are very enlightened spiritual things, but look closer. Why is it that we don't often give our money away? Well, it's because we don't have faith. We question whether God can really take care of us. We question if there's really enough for us in our neighbor. We're scared, and so we hoard. We don't have faith. Or take hope. Hope is all about where we really place our identity and worth and value, the thing that we put ultimate trust in and look forward to. And our money will always show us where our hope is. Is it really in God? Or is it in the coffee we like to drink? Or the restaurants we can eat at? Or the home we can live in? Or the clothes we wear? And what about love? Friends, to claim that we, we love God and love others without giving radically to help them is an oxymoron. We can never claim to love someone if we aren't willing to put our money, our possessions, our time, ourselves on the line for the sake of the one we love. As if you want to expose what you truly have faith in and what you truly hope in and what you truly love, look at your budget. It's all there in ones and zeros. And to be really, really clear, Jesus is not a man obsessed with getting our money. I know that in a lot of religious spaces that some of us have inhabited, it's kind of felt like the church is obsessed with getting our money, right? That Jesus and the church are kind of in cahoots to get all of our stuff. That's not Jesus' goal, and that's not our goal at Midtown. You never pay to come to church. It's always an invitation into partnering with God and what he's doing in the world. So I want to be really, really clear about that here. Jesus doesn't want your money. Midtown's not a place that just wants your money. But what Jesus does want is you. He wants you to trust in him, to rely upon him, because that's where true, lasting life is found, in him. And he also knows that the way you illustrate trust and what you really prioritize is oftentimes in the way you use your wealth and possessions. He knows, in his own words, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In fact, that's precisely why Jesus responds the way he does to the man in this story. He says, Be on guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. See, what Jesus is doing here is exposing the problem underneath the man's problem. See, the man thinks his problem is that he doesn't have enough stuff. He needs more stuff. He doesn't. Cece's right. The problem that the man really has is believing that more stuff can actually give him true, lasting life. The man's question to Jesus is exposing a deeper problem. And this is fundamentally what Jesus and Christians mean by greed. Greed is a disordered love or desire for money or possessions which seeks ultimate satisfaction in temporal things. I'll say that again. It's a disordered love or desire for money or possessions which seeks ultimate satisfaction in temporal things. And it's always an illusion. Greed has us believing a deadly lie. And here's what's amazing. Everyone actually agrees with Jesus on this. Seriously, throughout human history, all our great spiritual teachers teachers and philosophers have warned against the same problem. Take Siddhartha Buddha, for instance. He said, there's no fire like passion, no shark like hatred, no snare like folly, no torrent like greed. Socrates put it this way. He said, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he'd like to have. Seneca says, it's not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more that is poor. And even Mahatma Gandhi. Earth provides enough to satisfy every man's needs but not every man's greed. So just to get this straight, we've all got a problem with greed. We all agree it's bad. We always have. And yet we can't seem to stop ourselves from it. For thousands of years, in spite of great moral examples, in spite of great moral rules, we can't stop wanting more. Why? Well, as it turns out, Knowing something is wrong doesn't mean we're able to fix it. And good moral examples aren't able to fix it in us. See, according to Jesus in the scriptures, there's actually a condition in us as humans that prevents us from fixing this by our own moral willpower. It's a sickness that infects us all. It's a sickness that Christians have always called sin, with a capital S. And greed is one of the symptoms of that sickness. And I know, again, that word sin has oftentimes been used to shame or condemn other people but I think it's actually really helpful and simple when you understand it well. Sin is just disordered love. Jesus tells us that we as humans were originally designed with a distinct purpose, to love God and to love others and to love all of creation. Love is our purpose, and sin is when our loves get out of order. When we love the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reason. And we can't seem to help ourselves from this. We're always doing this. No matter how hard we try, no matter what rules we try to follow, no matter what other people tell us, we can't seem to escape doing the wrong, loving the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so that's the problem underneath the problem here. We have a condition of disordered love. We need our loves to be put back in order. And so that's what's gone wrong. But Jesus doesn't stop with what's gone wrong. He also shows us how we can fix it, where we can find healing for something like And he does that by doing one of his favorite things in this passage, telling a story, the parable. He tells us of a rich, landowning man whose work yields an overabundance of crops one year. He's gotten the equivalent of like a Christmas bonus or an unexpected promotion or an inheritance check in the mail. And notice, Jesus actually doesn't condemn the abundance. Did you catch that? He doesn't say it's bad to have gotten this abundance which shows us actually the first symptom of greed, the first thing about greed. Greed is not primarily about things or the amount of things. It's about disordered attachment to those things. Jesus and the Bible are not opposed to things. In fact, some of the first commands that God gives to humans at the beginning of the Bible are all about how to steward and cultivate and enjoy things. In Genesis 1 and 2, God gives abundantly to all of creation. And he says, steward these things. Use these things well. Things are good, not bad. The question Is not whether we have them, but how we use them. Do we use our abundance towards the end of scarcity, towards the end of hoarding, towards the end of self-protection, or do we use them for the sake of flourishing for the world? And that means that actually it's not about the amount you have. The poor are not necessarily free from greed, and the rich are not inherently greedy. The question is always how we view our stuff and how we use it. So if you want to know if greed has wormed its way into your heart, start with some simple internal questions. Questions like, how would it make you feel tomorrow if 50% of your closet was immediately unavailable to you and gone? How'd that make you feel? When presented with an opportunity to give of your things, does your giving come easily and lovingly, or does it come hesitatingly out of fear? Do you spend considerable amounts of your free time thinking about what you might be able to consume in order to feel better about yourself and your life? That's how we can tell. It's our attachment to the things. Greed isn't just about the amount. It's about disordered attachment. We also see a second symptom of greed here in this parable. We see it's primarily self-motivated. Do you notice the man's response to his overabundance? Listen to his words again. He thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and I will store my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, relax, eat, drink, be merry. Who's he talking to? Himself. himself. Thirteen times in two verses. He is entirely unconcerned with the way this abundance might benefit anyone other than good old numero uno. And what's even more damning is that this man, Jesus says, was already rich. He already had a bunch. And yet, immediately, when he gets an abundance, he thinks, how can I make this work for me? Friends, when we receive an overabundance, the demon of greed will always tell us it's an opportunity to splurge on self. And the truth is that when we receive an overabundance, it's always an invitation from God to serve others with what we have. That's actually one of the primary ways that God works in a world of economic injustice all over the place. One of the main ways he works is by transforming the hearts of those who have much so that they are not inordinately attached to those things and so they can give freely for others who don't have. It's an amazing work that God can do in us when we have lots. And when we don't, when we don't share of our abundance like this, we're actively harming our neighbors. It's not just, well, I didn't give as much this month or I didn't give of my abundance. We are actively harming those around us. There's a Catholic theologian named Thomas Aquinas who wrote about this. He said, in this way, greed is a sin directly against one's neighbor. Since one person cannot overabound in external riches without another person lacking them. For temporal goods cannot be possessed by many at the same time. And here's the truth, you guys. That notion that when we get an abundance, we need to give it away, that is radically countercultural in our country. It's actually bad financial advice if you talk to most financial advisors in our country. When we receive an abundance, we are immediately taught that the wise thing, the good financial thing, is to save and invest for ourselves and our future. That is the primary goal for us. And actually, that's exactly what this man does in this story. He does exactly what you would learn to do in business school or what your banker would tell you to do. He's making the right move according to American business practices. There's a couple different ways this is true. First, by keeping the grain, he is now in control of the supply for his industry. And basic economics, when you control the supply, you control the market, and you immediately have a leg up on your competition so that if, for instance, a famine came along, all of the competition would have to come to you. You could charge whatever you wanted for that grain. This is smart business. And not only that, he tears down his current barns to build new ones, which is kind of a weird detail. Like, why not just build new barns next to the old ones, right? Well, because he's shrewd. He knows that if he tears them down, he can build bigger barns and take up less of his land with the barns so he can farm more of his land. He's maximizing his profit. This is great, smart business practices. And what Jesus is showing us here, friends, is that sometimes the right cultural financial decision is not the right way to love God and love others. Sometimes, focusing on our own security and economic advantage actually undermines the way we were meant to live. And that's why followers of Jesus, for as long as they've been around, have always been confusing to the world around them. They're remarkably unconcerned with their own benefit so long as those around them are suffering. And they're remarkably willing to give their stuff away for the sake of others. There's a great story from the life of C.S. Lewis that I think illustrates this well. Later in his life, C.S. Lewis was becoming increasingly popular as an author. And so he was writing a lot of books, getting a lot of books published and sold. And that meant he was getting a lot of profits. But he didn't really need them. He had had a good, successful career. He had a pension from teaching. And so he said, I'm actually just going to give away two-thirds of the profits of my books. Immediately. I'm not even going to touch them. I'm just going to give them away. And this was so embedded in his mind that he actually failed to report his full income on his taxes. He only recorded the third that he was keeping. And the British government's like, hey, man, you have actually gotten way more than this. You need to report this. So he had his brother start to do his taxes because he didn't understand the dynamics. That posture, two-thirds of his income just gone right away. Abundance leads us outward, not inward, not to self. And so greed is always self-motivated, friends. That's the second symptom we see. Some internal questions, again, to ask yourself, to see if this has warmed its way into you. What's your first instinct when you get in abundance? What's the first thing you want to do? What's the level at which you live? Do you have a lot of luxuries in your life? Do you start conversations about money by deciding where you want to give your money away, or how you can use your money for yourself, and then whatever's left over you can give away? How often do you use the word mine to describe things? Greed turns inward. Finally, the third symptom of greed, it's fearful of scarcity. That's ultimately why the man chooses to do what he does here. He has a viewpoint that assumes that there's only so much to go around, and so he needs to get what he can for his and himself. That's the fundamental assumption of the human heart, and again, of our American culture, the assumption of scarcity. Our whole economic market is built upon the belief that there's only a limited supply of stuff, And since there's a limited supply, I just need to get what I can for me and mine. And you gotta do the same for you. And this often gets illustrated in crises, really, really blatantly. For instance, remember in 2020, when shutdowns were announced about COVID? What was the first instinct most people had? Run to the store, stock up on toilet paper, water, and canned goods. Get as much as you can because we might run out, right? I need to protect me and mine. But think about it, did we run out of food? Did we run out of water? Can we still wipe our butts? Yes. Yes. It turns out there's not a scarcity of resources. There's actually plenty for everyone. But our instincts are always to prioritize self. It's the third sinful symptom, scarcity. And it's a lie. God has given abundantly to us in the world. There's a theologian named Walter Brueggemann who talks about this. He says, The myth of scarcity ends in despair. It gives us a present tense of anxiety, fear, greed, brutality. It produces child and wife abuse, indifference to the poor, the buildup of armaments, divisions between people, and environmental racism. It tells us not to care about anyone but ourselves, and it's the prevailing creed of American society. Friends, Jesus and the scriptures tell of a different reality. Instead of scarcity, that there is an abundance. God has given more than enough to the world. And so our priority should never just be to get more for ourselves. It should be to ensure that everyone has enough, to assure that everyone is taken care of. The reason people don't have enough in our world is because others have taken it from them or withheld it from them. There's a graphic I want to share with you guys that illustrates kind of uh, the way that scarcity thinking works in our lives and the way that abundance thinking works in our lives. And I think what we want to be able to do is move from the left column to the right column here. So scarcity says there's not enough to go around. Abundance says there's plenty for everyone. right? But scarcity is more than just about money or goods. Scarcity says, i got to prioritize my happiness. Abundance says, I find my happiness in yours. Scarcity says, I know all the answers. I have all the answers myself. And abundance says, I long to learn and grow. Scarcity is all about self-promotion. But abundance has another's focus. Scarcity will micromanage and distrust others, but abundance will promote freedom and trust. And finally, scarcity plays it safe to keep yourself comfortable, but abundance risks for the right things in order to grow. We need to move from the left column to the right column. Our primary call as Christians is to trust in God's abundance. And if we don't model it as Christians, not only have we deserted the truth of who God has called us to be, but we've also ruined our witness to a world that already thinks we're hypocritical. To a world that already thinks we don't do this well enough. That's why the great St. Basil of Caesarea said this, if you want storehouses, you have them in the stomachs of the poor. And that's what the rich man fails to do here. That's why the parable ends the way that it does. God calls this man, who has all of the right business practices, a fool. A fool. And then he asks this rhetorical question. He says, this very night, your life will be required of you. Where's your stuff going to go? Who's going to get it after all? After all of your effort to hoard and store up for yourself, it's going to end up in the hands of someone else anyway. Why didn't you give it to him in the first place? Look at where your stuff ends up. You can't bring it with you, right? It's going to end up with someone else anyway. So why not prioritize the care of that person right away instead of trying to hoard for the same result later on? Jesus here is exposing the insanity of worldly wisdom which says self-protect and store up because it's all going to go away anyway. It's nonsensical. At the end of the day, all our efforts to protect self will waste away and all that will matter at the end is that we've come to the end of ourselves for the sake of another. That is what points us beyond the symptoms of greed to the cure here. Jesus at the end gives us finally the paragon, the ultimate picture of what it looks like to overcome greed, and how we can receive that power in our lives. The final task, he says, is that we have to embrace being rich towards God. That's what the fool has failed to do. He hasn't been rich towards God. And the only way you become rich towards God is by recognizing first how rich God has been towards you. You can only give away to the extent that you've received. Paul actually picks up on this metaphor and idea in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 8. He says, For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus is the paragon, the exact opposite of the fool in this parable. Though he had an abundance, he chose to give entirely away himself. Though he had the power to keep what he had and force others to come to him, he came to others to give away all he had. Though he was a king, he became a lowly servant that we might become kings and queens ourselves. And though he was without sin, he took on sin and all of its power on the cross and rose again so that we might become people freed from the chains of our brokenness. And when we gaze at Jesus, when we allow the truth of what he's done to sink into our hearts and our minds and our souls, suddenly the chains that bind us to the disordered loves around us start to melt away. Suddenly, the economic alarm bells don't ring as loudly because we know God's abundant kingdom is coming and that we get to participate in it. Suddenly, the loss of our things doesn't phase us in the same way, for we know that in Christ, God gives us far more than we could ever ask or imagine. And suddenly, our contentment, our life, our peace, is not dependent on our material stuff. It's dependent only on our reception of Christ and who he is. He gives us far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. Friends, the wealth that Jesus offers us is everlasting. But we can only receive it if our hands stop grabbing at everything else. We can only receive it if we give up our greed and give the fullness of ourselves to Jesus. Remember, he's not after your money or your things. He's after you. And when you're willing to give him you, you will find the glorious riches of his life transforming you into a different sort of person it's not captive to consumerism, that's not possessed by possessions. So today, in this week, might we become people who give ourselves to Christ, who receive his love and grace, and commit to his way and work. Because that's where we become truly